Hello again and welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan and it is my privilege once again to join you in our virtual church classroom to study what uh, has become a really exciting and in-depth look at Christian doctrine and uh, it is roughly based on the Nicene Creed and this is a personalized interpretation of the Christian Believer course of study generated by Cokesbury Publishing and written by J. Ellsworth Callis. We are in our 13th session today, and our topic is the Savior. I look forward to sharing this study with you in just a few moments, but first a brief check-in on the world in general. Well, we're heading into the middle of October, and here in southwest Indiana, that means the beginning of what I like to call spring in reverse. In the springtime, many of us in the Midwest are accustomed to cold weather that's followed by storms and warm weather, and then cold weather again, and uh, it's a season for tornadoes and hail and thunder and lightning and uh, In the fall here in southwest Indiana, it is not uncommon to experience tornadoes even as late as November. And uh, so we really are sort of experiencing spring in reverse as we now make the transition from the summer and the autumn into the winter. These rapid changes in the climate are always exciting, uh, to say the least. Today we're anticipating some thunder and lightning and then a cold snap. And this is kind of the pattern around here in these days. Nevertheless, the fall colors are beginning to really emerge and they look beautiful. The leaves are raining gently down like giant snowflakes. And uh, it's also a beautiful time of the year. And it reminds us that the God of the seasons is always with us. It is uh, one of those times in the life of America when we've always got something to argue about. I suppose that never really changes, but at least today we're not talking about any uh, major tragedies in the in the national uh, scope. Uh, there's tragedy every day in every life. Uh, I was listening to something the other day that reminded me that, you know, we, we have all these terrible things that happen, um, around us, and uh, the only only the things that are of interest to those who present us with the news will be presented to us in a way that makes it a national issue. Nevertheless, a hundred people die every day in traffic accidents. A hundred people die every day of suicide. Hundreds of people die every day from sickness and disease. The fact is, it's a dangerous, fallen world that we're living in, and there's all kinds of sickness and sadness and sorrow. And I don't mean to be depressing, but when we put those things in perspective, first it reminds us of how much we need for God to redeem the world and how much we long for the return of Christ and the writing or correcting of creation as God intended it to be. But the other thing it reminds me of is is whether or not someone stands for the national anthem doesn't seem all that important when you weigh it against things like the ever-present death, injury, cruelty, and disease. 
These things are always there, and whatever we can do in our local context to relieve human suffering and to somehow uh, release the oppressed is probably the most important thing we do for God. And, of course, all this National Anthem stuff reminds me of a story I heard several years ago. I remember hearing of... uh, a young man named Jose who had emigrated from Spain to the United States. And Jose was uh, still a new citizen in the United States. He lived in one of those big cities on the East Coast. And and Jose was uh, writing his mother every week to tell her about his experiences in the the new homeland. And and, uh, he had, uh, on a particular occasion, had gone to his very first baseball game. Jose described the experience vividly in his letter to his mother. He said, Mother, you, you just really have to see this uh, spectacle. It, it's like going to the bullfights, and, uh, and yet it's, it's different. There, there are thousands of thousands of people, and uh, when I went there, I thought I could just walk in, but it, they told me I had to have a ticket, but I didn't have a ticket. And I really wanted to see the game nevertheless, so I did the only thing I could think to do, which was to climb up and see the uh, game from the outside of the building to the best of my ability. And uh, with that, why Jose describes how he snuck past certain entrances, got to the exterior of the building, and finally climbed up the outside of the arena, the stadium, and uh, then he found that he couldn't see from where he was. It was blocked by the lighting, and so he climbed a little higher. He found a pole. He shimmied to the top of the pole, and from the top of that pole, he could see the entire game. And then he says in his letter to his mother, and mother, those Americans are the nicest people in the whole world. Do you know that before that game started, everyone in that stadium looked right at me and said, Jose, can you see? this morning I was awakened by my iPhone to the sounds of the uh, Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah and uh, it is without a doubt one of the most remarkable pieces of music ever written and uh, this is one of my favorite numbers from the uh, from the entire Handel's Messiah For unto us a child is given, for unto us a child is born. And uh, once upon a time I sang in a choir that performed this, and I got to be one of those basses you hear in the background going, Oh, I did it better than that. It is this Savior that we've come to talk about today. Jesus is the Savior. We've talked about salvation, but now we're talking about the Savior. And this is different in that it is about the specifics of that man. We talked about his nature recently so that we could better understand his uniqueness in all of time and space and creation. But today we talk about his particular act as our Savior. In other words, we're not talking about salvation and why we need it, as much as we're talking about who saved us. 
and why he is the Savior, the one and the only. And for that reason, we find ourselves having to reconcile the fact that we're not going to get out of this life without at some point acknowledging Jesus as the Savior. And that, I can tell you, is not a simple matter for us because we are going to have to accept that even though it's not popular, even though it doesn't ride real well in church even these days, there is a definite truth that Jesus is the one and only source of our salvation. And I can tell you that there are many, many Christians who will not accept this truth, that there are many, many uh, in the world who find this to be one of the most repulsive things about Christians is their insistence that Christ is the only way of salvation, that Jesus is the only one through whom salvation comes. And when we speak of these things, we don't want to be people who speak with judgment, but rather people who speak with love. And our love is the driving force behind our commitment to our personal discipleship to this man, Jesus, and our hope that we can lead others into discipleship to Jesus as well. So before we begin talking about that, we better pray because it's going to take some prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit to get through this topic without getting really uncomfortable. Let us pray. Holy Jesus, we thank you because you are our Savior, our King, our Lord. You are the man, Jesus, and God in the flesh. You are co-creator of all that is. You are more than we can really wrap our minds around, and yet you made yourself someone we can wrap our arms around. How can this be? How can we be worthy of such incredible love? And so, Jesus, we come today to discuss you, to talk about you, and thankfully, we can do this without it being behind your back because you're here. Because the Holy Spirit, your equal partner in all of this, your equal person in all of this is with us. You are with us. And so we're not talking about you behind your back. We're talking about you with your participation. And so, Lord, witness to our hearts as we discuss these things. And wherever necessary, speak plainly. And uh, whenever necessary, wrap your fingers gently over my lips and tell me to shut up. Because, Lord, this is about you, not me. And all that we do here is to glorify you and to honor you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, I mentioned the... Handel's Messiah, wonderful, amazing, fantastic piece of music. Maybe you're someone who doesn't think you're into classical music, but if anything could convert you, I think this one would do it. For one thing, it was written by someone who speaks English, and so you can understand the words to this amazing piece of music, but it is also an absolute work of art that has been given for the glory of God, and uh, it tells the story in such a fantastic way. But anyway, uh, 
one of the things that that music usually does is take us back to the season of Christmas because most people think of it as a Christmas musical and uh, something that uh, very few of us have heard in its entirety, but almost everybody's heard the Hallelujah Chorus. And uh, it all comes down to a person, a baby no less. And at Christmas time, when we're exchanging gifts and we're looking at twinkle lights and we're looking at our nativity scene as the little little baby lays in a manger and Jesus is surrounded by the animals and uh, the shepherds and the kings and Mary and Joseph. It's all very surreal and beautiful and it makes our Christmas season more complete to to, to sort of imagine these things and uh, and then the reality for us believers has to set in. And the reality is this, that that baby was born to die. This baby was destined for the cross. That this mother and father, so full of hope and so full of that mysterious, incredible bond that happens the minute that your child is placed in your arms, it, it doesn't occur to them at that time that this baby will not live to be an old man, that this baby will not uh, see the kind of joy that all of us hope for in our lives, that we would all grow up and, and uh, get married and have children and grandchildren and grow old and die peacefully in our sleep, surrounded by our loved ones. I mean, this is everybody's dream, I guess, but at least most of us. And uh, this is not going to happen for Jesus. In fact, within a couple of years of his birth, there will be an attempt to get rid of him by way of mass murder. And there will be a desperate escape to Egypt, and there will be this constant reality that this unique child is destined for trouble. It's hard for us to imagine when we think of Christmas that Easter's coming. It's hard for us to imagine at Easter time, that even that isn't the major event, that the really major event is Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and the barrier that separated us from God, this barrier of sin, will be released and all the flood of heaven will surround us and inundate us if we'll let it. And this is the nature of this child, this, this little baby. This little baby who is both human and divine. This baby who is born to Mary in the same way that <coughs> all babies are born. <coughs> Excuse me. And yet this baby is also the seed of God, the Holy Spirit. This baby will be announced by angels. This baby will be constantly watched and guarded by the heavenly host. This baby will be the constant attention of the evil one. And this baby will be the change that the whole world pivots on, that all of time and space pivots on. This unique person will be the turning point or or will be the fulcrum upon which all of everything balances. 
this little baby with ten little fingers and ten little toes. This baby that smells like babies do. This baby that coos and cries. This baby that looks into your eyes with this most amazing, innocent, beautiful acceptance. This baby that will be the only human being who ever lived, who at 30 years old will still have that same look in his eyes. This beautiful expression of utter acceptance. It's remarkable, really, to think about it. But this baby was destined to be our Savior. This baby was born to save us at this baby's own expense. And this is where we enter the conversation about the one who came to save the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the mediator, the one who bears our sins and punishment, the one who is the plan of our salvation, the one who conquers death, who is nailed to the cross, <clears throat> who is our deliverer. In Psalm 22, when you read that uh, passage, you probably saw how uh, it is the constant plea of the people of a hundred generations, of hundreds of generations, that there would be deliverance from suffering. And suffering is one of those things that we all cry out to be delivered from, but, but in the biblical sense, we mustn't view suffering as temporary discomfort or even the oppression of evil nations. And God cares deeply about all of those things. But in the biblical sense, our suffering is the consequence of sin. All suffering is the result of sin. In the eyes of God, no suffering would occur if not for the entrance of sin into the world and the liberty that sin's author, Satan, has over creation. And so the ever-present reality of evil is the source of our sin or our suffering. And so we trace it back to Adam and Eve, as we talked about last week. It goes back to there, that we see in them this ability and willingness to distrust God's character, to distrust the love of God. And this distrust that is always there leads to contempt and disrespect for God that is, well, you know, kind of like when your little child is somewhere around the age of two or three and suddenly they're no longer completely trusting of you. They're no longer sure that you're right about everything or that you care about everything the way that you do. They, they look to mom and dad and there's a sudden urge to test the limits and it turns into contempt. And as we all know, in those uh, teenage years, the contempt turns into a storm. You know, in a way, it's, that, uh, it's like that changing of the seasons we talked about earlier. It's the difference between the warm, wonderful summer breezes and the cold winter chill and the storms that precede the change between the two. And this is the human condition. It is a condition shaped by sin. It is a condition that requires correction. And to tell the truth whether we are aware of it or not, sin has put us on a 
float trip down a vicious river. I, I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. I've been there several times, actually. And, and, uh, and starting when I was a child, so the fascination has uh, remained with me that was there when I was a little child. And, and when you see the enormity of the Horseshoe Falls in particular, and it just overwhelms you to see this this incredibly huge volume of water constantly pouring over this uh, 200-foot precipice. And, 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 and then as I grew older and I would look from, from the brink of those falls up the river and, and realize that what an incredibly wide and, and wild river it is, and then to realize that, that beyond that river is a great lake, and those Great Lakes are another source of amazing fascination to me, probably because I grew up around them. And, and, and I'm just amazed at these gigantic bodies of fresh water that exist in this, in this continent. And, and to imagine that all that water spills down that river and then flows over those amazing falls. And then, and then the cataracts and the amazing uh, uh, white water and, and an incredible volume of, of water that moves down that Niagara Gorge to yet another Great Lake. And, and all of that is so overwhelming to watch and to contemplate. And... I'm reminded of it as we talk about our condition, because when we think about what it would mean to be caught up in that river, you know, perhaps you're boating on the great lake that feeds that river, and you don't sense that you're in any danger at all because, well, it doesn't really appear that there's any danger. And if things go according to plan, you'll probably dock your boat and, and uh, go home from your outing. But, but should you find yourself out on that river, somewhere above those falls, and your boat runs out of gas, I think there's a very famous movie with Marilyn Monroe in it where the very thing that I'm describing happens. And what do you see? You see what looks like a normal boating trip suddenly turn into something terrifying until at the very last, if you are not plucked from that boat, you will dive over those falls, be crushed to pieces. Very few people have lived by tempting those falls. More often than not, the rescuers will tell you they find bits and pieces of people. And the truth is, that's the nature of our condition. We may not know yet that we are in great danger. We may not have accepted the fact that we are drifting on the Niagara River towards the abyss and certain destruction awaits us. We may not know it, but if you will just indulge me for a minute, Imagine yourself going from relatively calm water to water that begins to ripple and rattle your boat a little bit, water that begins to feel kind of treacherous, water that has you bouncing off of rocks and things, and water that suddenly seems to just disappear on the horizon except for this plume of steam and mist that goes into the air above that precipice. 
And this is when the panic sets in. This is when the certainty of your dilemma really begins to hit you. And it's then that you look to the sky for that helicopter that's going to hover over you and lower the the uh, ladder and rescue you. There's where you find yourself looking for a rock to sit on or something so that you can avoid the certain death. And then you realize that you need a Savior. And at that moment... Whoever it is, if they pluck you from certain destruction, they're your savior. And this is important to consider because this is the nature of Christ. This is Jesus. He's the one. And, and what's really amazing is, is he's the only one. There's no one else that can do it. In your Niagara Falls scenario, you could imagine anybody coming to your rescue. In fact, you wouldn't question who it was as long as rescue was the outcome. So it wouldn't matter to you who did it or how as long as they saved you before you were certain to die. But in this case, there is only one who can rescue you. And so in this dilemma where we find ourselves certain to be it, uh, to, to inevitably descend over the abyss and into over the precipice and into the abyss. And, you know, here's your word guy getting all caught up in his words. But, but, you know, let's just take it back to the reality. So we're all on this river that is rapidly picking up speed and beating us up and taking us right to the place where we plunge over into hell. Now, I've never been a fire and brimstone guy, and I've never been the kind of person who would stand in front of a group of people and tell them they're all going to hell unless they accept Jesus. But you know something? Part of the reason I'm not that way is because there is such a long history in our country of people who have used that very method and once very effectively in order to lead people to salvation. And now it's kind of a turnoff. And, you know, that's why we don't do it so much anymore. I remember when I was a teenager and I had moved from Pennsylvania to Oklahoma. Why, all the friends I made there were churchgoers, and those churchgoers were always asking me these questions. Are you saved? And I thought, I don't know. I, I guess I'd have to know I was in trouble to know whether I was saved. Well, the truth is I was raised Catholic, and I didn't know what they were talking about. But yes, I was saved. It's just that I interpreted salvation differently from a Southern Baptist. And not in the sense that my salvation was less authentic than theirs, but I used different language to express it. I used different uh, uh, acts of worship to express it. But in the end, what we are all in agreement about is, is that without Christ to save us, without Jesus Christ to save us, we're doomed. Now, that leads to the question that always gets asked, if this is true, then what happens to those people who never heard about Jesus, who don't really know who Jesus is and may never know who Jesus is? What about the, 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 the remote village somewhere in South America where the people have never been exposed to the Christian gospel? This is a very, very fair question. And the answer is... I don't know, but I do, sort of. 
And this, if you're a regular listener to me, is one of my ongoing themes, that one of the reasons we study Scripture and one of the reasons we pray uh, routinely is so that we can know the heart and mind of God. This is why we call this podcast Knowing God with Heart and Mind, because in order for us to really engage our heart and mind with the heart and mind of God, we've got to get into the scripture and get into regular conversation and regular prayer. Uh, we, we want to be around other believers who have walked a genuine walk with Christ so that we can learn from them, so that we can, we can avail ourselves to all the various sources of the Word, with a capital W, the mind of God. Now, when you know God's mind, you know more than what you can read in the book. When you know the mind of God, it doesn't mean that you would risk being a dangerous and reckless interpreter of God. And so, I will never tell you that I'm sure I know what God thinks unless I can at least point you to a variety of scriptures that support my argument. And so, I would never assume that by myself that I have this particular talent for telling you exactly what's on God's mind. I believe that those who are prophets, those who herald God's word in specific ways according to the spiritual gifts of the, of the Holy Spirit, that, that even they would tell you that they would never want to say anything that could not be validated by God by the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, in the case of speaking in tongues, which is another topic that we can talk about later, um, I am uh, in, in no disagreement with those who believe in speaking in tongues, though I don't appear to have that gift and haven't been particularly exposed to a lot of it. I don't dispute the speaking in tongues gift. What, what, I, what I insist on, though, is that should someone speak in a language that's unknown to them, there better be someone around to whom the speech is directed. In other words, when someone speaks in tongues around me, I want to hear an interpreter or I want to interpret because then I'll know that it is a word from God. Again, I can make these kinds of claims or, or, or insist on these sorts of terms because I've studied Scripture. Now, I'm no expert, but I know enough about the heart and mind of God with my own heart and mind to know that there are certain things about God that I'm comfortable saying and believing. And here's one of those things that I'm comfortable saying and believing. While I do not know how God intends to fulfill this, I am confident that on the day of judgment, when God sorts the sheep and the goats, on that day when God says, do you know my son? There will be those who certainly have never met the son. And I literally imagine then God saying to, to them, well, I'd like to introduce you to him. And so, I believe with all my heart, my friends, that when someone has never really known Jesus, they will not be condemned for what they did not know. They will be condemned for what they knew but rejected. And that makes all the difference. And so, it is my sincere belief, and yet I can't point you to specific scripture that will support this. Rather, I can point you to a... Uh, understanding of God's nature that comes from a variety of places in Scripture and from my personal prayer life, I can come to the conclusion that there will be, I hope, an opportunity for those who have never really known Jesus to know Him before they decide. 
And I believe that the nature of humanity and sin and evil is such that even while they stand at the judgment of God and they are introduced to Jesus, their Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, they'll reject him, even in that hour. And yet those who do not will be welcomed. I believe that is the thing. And so that takes us to the next point that I would like for us to consider about Jesus. The baby Jesus grew to be a man. And this man's story we know pretty well because we can read in the gospel accounts and in those letters that follow a lot of information about this man. And what we know about this man is that he was a flesh and blood human being like us who embraced people, who touched them, who ate with them, who walked with them, who slept in their homes, who, who was engaged with them in a very real, tactile, and genuine way. And this Jesus is someone that everyone who met him was forced to make a decision about. And there were those who rejected him outright and those who loved him immediately and embraced him as their savior. It really hasn't changed other than the physicality of the thing. Because this Jesus who died on the cross, a real death, a complete death, a total death, a death that included something that was completely unthinkable to Jesus, which was the separation that sin created, even for him for a time, from his own father, his own nature, his own connectedness with father and spirit. This Jesus also rose from the grave, and there is in him the firstborn of the resurrected dead, but also in him there is this living person, while different because he's in the resurrection form, he is still human, still physical. You are told that he invited people to touch him. He told Thomas, go ahead, put your fingers in the holes, you know. And, and he ate with them, and he slept in their homes, and he visited with them, and he fished with them, and he walked with them, and he did all these things even after he was uh, resurrected. And what's so fascinating is he also had a dimensional quality that was different something apparently we can look forward to in the resurrection because Jesus, while being as physical as, as ever, even in the resurrection, he also didn't need to worry about whether your doors were locked or not. And he didn't need to uh, worry about whether he was in Jerusalem and had an appointment in 10 minutes at uh, the Sea of Galilee, you know. And, and so you have this really uh, uh, remarkable fully human being in the resurrected Jesus who is also unique in that he is the first example to us of what resurrection will be like. This same Jesus physically ascends to heaven. And this is how they describe it, Jesus ascending to heaven. And I, you know, I don't want to get into uh, the metaphysical part yet, but I will tell you that, that you know, maybe he ascended to heaven. We, we like looking up to the sky and thinking heaven is there. 
but I think that modern Christians can be perfectly comfortable with understanding that it's really not up as much as it is outside of our perception, that, that uh, heaven is all around us, that the place of God, which is a better way to think of it, is all around us. And uh, ask me how I know, and I'll tell you to read the book of Revelation. And here's the thing. There are a lot of people that like to read Revelations, and uh, they have this whole idea that this is this book about the end of the world that they're fascinated with and all that. And, and listen, I'm not trying to be condescending or disrespectful, but first of all, it's a Revelation, no S at the end, and it is a book that is about more than the end of the world and all that scary stuff that we like to worry over. Or when all those bad people are going to get theirs or whatever. But this book tells us so much about the very nature of heaven and earth. This book tells us what we really want to know. And we don't even bother to ask. Which is, where do I go when I die? And what is it like where God is? And what what is God doing right now where I can't see God? And where is Jesus if Jesus isn't here anymore? I, I, these are the kind of questions I think a lot of people want answers to, and the answers are there in the book of Revelation, and it's kind of fascinating. And I don't want to get started on Revelation because, man, I love talking about that book, even though I routinely disappoint people because I don't talk about it the way they want me to talk about it. I'd rather talk about what I read and see than talk about what I'm guessing which, frankly, is what a lot of bad preachers do. They want to tell you how current conditions seem to be the book of Revelation revealed in our midst. I don't deny that those things can be happening in our midst. I just think that the first thing we have to do is engage the Word as it is presented to us. And as it's presented to us, it tells us that Jesus is still here, just outside of our perception. That Jesus is, in a very real sense, with us always because of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is, is our connection to the realm wherein God is enthroned. And that we can literally imagine that Jesus, the little baby who grew up to be a man, who died on the cross, who rose again and is the firstborn of the resurrected dead, that this same Jesus is a human being sitting on the throne of God in the place where God dwells. And the only reason we can't see that is because we are this side of it. And one day, we're going to get to go to that side of it. And if we live long enough, we might even see that descend to this, which is the second coming. And when that second coming occurs, it will be a man, Jesus, who will descend, so to speak, who will be witnessed by all of us and experienced by all of us. It'll be a literal, physical thing. And that's pretty hard to wrap your mind around, but that's what the Scripture says when you just take it as it's written. My advice to you when you're reading Scripture, by the way, is first start by just reading it and accepting that what it says is what it means. Now, there's times when that's harder to do than others, but if you can start by just reading the Bible and accepting that it says what it means. Then you come back and you look for context. Context is essential. 
Context is why we know that when Paul wrote certain things to certain churches at certain places and certain times, he wasn't necessarily saying that this was true for everybody for all time. And then there are these other things that are pretty absolute and not that hard to figure out. So context is vital, but first just read it. Just read it and think about what it says to you. And what it says plainly to me is my Savior, the man Jesus, is still with me always. And while I can't hug him and hold him in exactly the same way as those apostles who knew him on earth do, I am not that far removed from him. I'm simply unable to perceive his presence in the same way that I would your presence. But he's with us. He's just outside of our perception. Ask me how I know. Read the stories of the account of his birth and ask yourself, how did the shepherds who were sitting in the fields watching their flocks by night suddenly see an angel and then all the heavenly hosts and then they disappear eventually? And why does that happen? Because for whatever reason in that moment, they were able to see past the veil of time and space and into eternity. And in the same way, John of Patmos is able to look past the veil of time and space, and I said into eternity, but into the place where God dwells. So when I look at these things and I try to reason them in a very, you know, this is what it means to, to know God with heart and mind. I use my mind to reason these things out so that my heart and mind are in sync with each other. And what I realize is, is this man, Jesus, is ever-present, always ready for that day of return, that day that will be so glorious. And that Jesus is only separated from us by the veil. But the Spirit, the Spirit is our connection between here and there. The Spirit is the energy of heaven or the energy of Christ beyond the veil flowing to us. And the Spirit is the mind of Christ expressing in our minds that which God and the heavenly host are, are observing and thinking and knowing even though they're just outside of our ability to perceive them. It's kind of amazing. This is the Jesus that I love. This is the Jesus who saves me. This is the Jesus I want you to know. And this is not a Jesus uh, that is contrived by religion as much as a Jesus who says religion is an important part of relating to me and working out the things I've asked you to do in my absence. But it is nevertheless a corruptible institution that routinely needs correction. And this is Jesus saying this to us from beyond the veil, just outside of our perception by the Holy Spirit. And so we join together for that purpose, to know God through Christ our Lord with the power of the Holy Spirit, with heart and mind. And it is, I believe, entirely possible and so, if you're one of those people who says, okay, fine, I admit it, there's, there's need for a Savior, and I admit it, Jesus is the Savior. Well, unfortunately, I can't help you 
understand the nature of your dilemma. I, in other words, if you're out there on the Niagara River, just beyond the buoys, just before the place where you are now in deep trouble, and I yell to you from the shore, hey, buddy, don't go past those buoys because the rest of the trip is certain death. I'd do that for you. I would. I'd tell you, please, friend, you don't know it, but you're just this close to getting into a torrent that will take you to certain death. But I can't really do that. I mean, I can tell you, but you're the only one that's going to know. And that's the problem of, of, of trying to witness to other people, as, uh, as some like to say. You know, when you ask someone, are you saved? Well, I guess you need to be able to ask them a more reasonable question first, which is, are you in trouble? Because, you know, if you tell someone who doesn't think they're in trouble that they need to be saved, they're going to look at you like you're out of your mind. And so the question to ask is, how's it going? How's your life these days? Oh, well, yeah, there is sickness and disease. Yeah, there are evil people shooting at crowds. Yes, there is. Uh, there are a hundred suicides every day and a hundred uh, um, ac car accident deaths a day. And yeah, it's an ugly world. Well, why do you suppose that is? See, if you want to help other people to know that they are in need of saving, and if you want to help them to know the one and only Savior, the first thing you have to do is be in a relationship with them. See, if you're really saved and really committed to your new life under the leadership of Jesus Christ, one of the things you got to do is imitate him. You got to be like him. You got to live into it. And it's something we call sanctification, but really it just boils down to this. Now that you're born again, grow up. Be a Christian. Live this life. And it's living it that changes other people. It's not your words, and it's not your condemnation, and it's not your judgment, and it's not your threatening them with the wrath of God. Who are we to do that? Rather, it is through our relationship building and love and grace in the imitation of Christ and the apostles that gives us an opportunity to ask people the key questions about their lives and their perception of things. And it is then that we get to show them, first by demonstrating, and second with our gentle words, the way of salvation you got to know you're in trouble before you know you need a Savior. Do you know you're in trouble? Do you know you need a Savior? All you have to do is call out to him. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me. Believe me, the rest will come. It really will. But don't miss out on the opportunity to journey with others along the way because sometimes the people around you can see the danger before you do. And this is our goal, really, as a church. When we are a religious institution that's getting it right, we are a family of faith that is saving each other, or at least helping each other to be saved in the, in the family of faith.
Well, friends, we've come to the end of our time together, and uh, I have to say that uh, we, we probably didn't follow the strict uh, uh, structure of this uh, this time. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I hope you are. Uh, my hope for you now is that you will live into these truths that God has revealed. I'm not saying they're true because I say them. I'm saying them as truth that God has given to me by the love and grace of God, which transpires, uh, transacts, transacts, no, transcends. That's the word I'm looking for, that transcends even this broken vessel, which I've just thoroughly demonstrated, by the way. And so, my friends, it's time for us to go. I want to remind you that we are here every week, God willing, with our virtual classroom, that this is an expression of the ministry of uh, yours truly, Pastor Dan and Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. We welcome you to be a part of the ministry at Jasper, Indiana. I need to quit because the tongue is now officially done. Uh, we invite you to be a part of that. We invite you to join us in worship together and join us in serving God together. Uh, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. And among us, there are those who are young in the faith and those who are old, seasoned saints and everything in between. And uh, yeah, there's room for you and you would be made welcome. And if you're not able to join us in Jasper, Indiana, that's okay. Please find a place where there are people who are young in the faith and old seasoned saints who genuinely love the Lord and desire to grow together with you as they serve the Lord. This is where I want you to be. Please don't use this as your exclusive place of activity. You know, don't let this be the only thing you do because there's more, much more. And it awaits you as you join others in the kingdom of God. But for now, I want to wish you well, and God bless you. Go in peace now to love and serve the Lord. Amen.